This is an ABC podcast. Louise Kennedy grew up Catholic in a majority Protestant town just outside of Belfast in Northern Ireland. This was the 1970s, a time when the troubles were raging. Bombs and sectarian killings were a part of daily life. Louise's family owned a pub, and like many other pubs, it became the target of bomb threats and then of actual bombs. So the family moved south to Ireland. Louise went on to work as a chef for almost three decades, eventually opening her own restaurant, The Silver Apple, in Sligo. But then in 2014, a friend suggested she come along to a writer's group, and that decision changed the trajectory of Louise's life. Her absolutely brilliant debut novel, Trespasses, was released last year. It's a love story between a young Catholic teacher named Kushla and an older married Protestant man. And the novel is set in the world of Louise's childhood in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Hi, Louise. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for having me. What do you think of that word, the Troubles? It it doesn't seem big enough or ugly enough to describe what was happening in Ireland in in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's a gentle um, word, really... I, I think that um, the reason why it seems kind of uh, inappropriate or something or not enough is because in the early, I think it was maybe 1920, 1921, there was a big uh, sort of prolonged outburst of sectarian violence in Belfast and it was called the Troubles then, um, which is maybe why it sounds almost like a Victorian word or something. So when the violence erupted again in 1969, a journalist from the Irish News said, this is like the Troubles of 1920 and, and the terms seemed to stick. So the idea that it was, um, you know, this sort of gentle melancholy thing when really it was heavily militarised mayhem. A war, a war, but it, it seemed like there's no one front line, a war that happened in just people's houses and streets and pubs and schools. Yeah, I think that that's what it was. It, I think it was just very complex in that there was a very heavy security presence um, that, that got heavier and heavier after the initial arrival of um, of British troops in 1969. By, I think, maybe 1974 or five, there were 30,000 troops which is a vast quantity of soldiers in a place that's really pretty small. Um, and that didn't include the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which um, was, was a big force. And then there was also another regiment called the Ulster Defence Regiment, which was a mostly Protestant. It was kind of like an offshoot of the British Army, but it, it seems now that there might have been some collusion with paramilitaries, so they were operating in, in, in a kind of particular way sometimes. And, and that's completely aside from the paramilitary organisations, you know, the kind of, I mean, I guess, pseudo-guerrilla groups that um, that grew up in um, mostly working-class communities. The, the best known would be the IRA on the Republican side and uh, the INLA, and then on the other side, the UDA, the UVF, those, those groups. And how early were you aware that you were living in the midst of a kind of war zone. From from what age do you think? I think it was pretty early because very quickly roadblocks started to appear. The security was there. So if you tried to go anywhere, you would be stopped by the army or by the police. Sometimes you might even be stopped at a paramilitary uh, checkpoint, which was illegal. So that was something that happened maybe in 1974 during the Ulster Workers' Council strike. What would the atmosphere have been like in your family car when you were a little kid and, and you're being stopped? What, what do you remember? What was it like? I think very quickly it was one of acceptance um, because there was nothing that could be done about it. You know, if there's soldiers standing, you know, our armed men standing asking you where you're going, you know, wind down the window, let me see your driver's licence. Nobody's really going to, to object. I think we knew just to sort of sit in the back seat and, and behave ourselves. And there were other things, I suppose, that I noticed too. Um, so my father's family lived in this small town, Hollywood, um, on on the shores of Belfast Lock, where my, my grandparents had a pub. My mother um, came from um, Ardoin, uh, she wouldn't say it. she would say it wasn't Ardoin it was north of Ardoin but we <laughs> had to Heights. yes so we had to drive through Ardoin to get to see my granny in um, in North Belfast and we did that several days uh, a week most days after school we go to see her and it was I, I don't know what were other words used it appeared to be in a state almost of intifada for a few years there were riots that seemed to be con- it seemed like one riot that just went on for years you know we would have seen petrol bombs thrown um, there's a scene that I describe at the very beginning of trespasses of a child climbing up the side of a Saracen personnel carrier, a small child. So he's trying to throw stones at the soldiers, but they're in this armoured 
personnel carrier. So he pokes the stone into one of the slits. And I, I saw that happen when I was a child in the back seat of a car. And I, I remember a couple of times when you could hear the crack of gunfire and my mother said they're firing rubber bullets. Um, so th this was the, the army or police firing rubber bullets in the general direction of these teenagers. Now, it wasn't like that on the streets where we lived. So I lived in a bungalow on a street full of children. Uh, my father was training to be an accountant. It was kind of very gentle and middle class in, in lots of ways. Um, I mean, I suppose I was very aware of lots of things. Um, I remember my main kind of... Um, not, it wasn't a sectarian preoccupation, but at one point, uh, my next door neighbour, who was my kind of friend, not friend, who was Protestant, um, got a pair of Bay City roller socks. And I did, <laughs> my mother didn't like that sort of thing. And I probably would have killed her for them. Um, so, That's when so the that was about, really hit Yeah, down. exactly. That was about the extent of my, um, yeah, you know, my, my interest in armed struggle was to get those socks off her. Um, <laughs> what was your primary school like in, in the area that you lived? It was a very cute school in some ways. It was very small. There were maybe 250 or 300 children. It was a Catholic school, but there were no religious in it. So a lot of the teachers would have been um, young enough, you know, quite a few of them. Uh, we had one lovely teacher in particular, actually, when I was seven or eight. And she used to come in and she'd maybe show us a Monet, a poster of a Monet painting and ask us to write something. And I remember one day she played a Mozart horn concerto and asked us to write something. Um, now, nobody in the class was bringing a lot of cultural capital into the room. Um, so it was kind of insane. And some people didn't really bother to try and respond at all. But if you did, she was madly encouraging. Um, so she was kind of sweet like that. But also, I think I was aware that um, in a society which is divided, I think that as Catholics, we had our own little class system. And the, the, the middle class, the Catholic middle class really was mostly publicans and um, publicans and bookies, actually, um, because I think those were the businesses that Presbyterians didn't want to engage in. So those, ah. those were the ones that were left uh, to Catholics. And then I think what those publicans and bookies did was to educate their children. So then it got to a point where maybe there were publicans and bookies and a few doctors and a few <laughs> solicitors. Um, so we had a pub and, I mean, I knew that we were kind of middle class. But then when I went to school... There were some children maybe who clearly were struggling. Um, it wasn't, before the Fair Employment Agency um, began, it wasn't easy for Catholics to get work. And um, I mean, th there was definitely fairly extreme poverty in, in some families within the community. And I didn't feel that they were always being treated very kindly. How did you used to start the day at primary school? What, was, what, what would you share to kick your learning off? Well, we started with the Hail Mary um, every day. And um, Hail Mary, actually, that was so garbled. Um, it sounds like a, a chant at a football match. It's this kind of, woo, the kind of thing. It's a ridiculous noise, you, you know, not very I'm well very pronounced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, race to the finish. And then um, we did something that was called the news. That's pretty standard fare in a primary well, school. I think it is. I guess, of your, your that's community. it. Or maybe it's like, a, you know, a form of show and tell or something. So where kids, I, I guess it's just a way for children to show that they're engaged with the world that they're in. Um, but I, I'm not really sure how um, well advised that was because... Um, the news where we lived um, was really a litany of sectarian attacks, uh, bomb explosions, bomb scares, um, political stalemate and, um, and, this would be and various other things. And this would be being reported by seven, eight-year-olds. Yeah, so we were supposed to watch the news um, the previous evening and maybe when we got a little older, maybe try and read the newspaper. And then we were supposed to uh, recount the news in our own words. And I mean, there really wasn't an awful lot that was terribly cheerful. So it, I think it meant that our vocabulary was, was really pretty out there for, for children of that age. So, you know, if you were recounting the news, it wasn't enough just... I remember my sister came home one day and she was younger than me, outraged that a boy in her class had said there was a bomb in Belfast. But she hadn't told what what kind of explosives were used or what what quantity of explosives. Um, detail, where's the detail? Where's the detail, yeah. And, and it wasn't enough just to say Belfast, you know. You had to be able to kind of be a bit more local. Um, so, um, yeah, it became kind of competitive. But, I, I mean, I guess it meant that... Um, you know, we would have used words like um, gelignite and so on um, fairly casually and did, we knew what we were talking about. Did your parents talk a lot about politics or what was going on when you were at home? I don't recall them talking a lot about politics, but I know that we were being constantly bombarded by the news because it was before mobile phones and people were... I mean, there were almost scuffles over the newspaper sometimes. Um, you know, um, the news was on. Everybody watched the news at six o'clock. So because of where we lived, we would get the um, the British news, the BBC news, and then it went to this programme that was called Seen Around Six, which is basically like a war programme for like half an hour. And we'd all watch that. And sometimes they'd try and, you know, think of a human interest 
story or and something. What, what would they come up with? Well, there was one human interest story um, that I actually remember seeing and um, it was where they sent a reporter into Belfast City Centre to talk about streaking. Streaking? Yes. <laughs> Um, so, where, uh, where were people streaking in Well, Belfast? I think, do you remember at one stage, um, every time you turned on a football match or a cricket match, some lunatic would go flying across a muddy pitch with no clothes on, with a couple of policemen running after trying to hold their hats on and, and pull them away. This was like a thing in the 70s that people started streaking in public. And it wasn't always, you know, I mean, all kinds of people were streaking. It wasn't like, anyway, it was bizarre. Um, so, um, that was the happy story at the end of the, the That was the happy bombing. story, exactly, yeah. So, um, they, yeah, the reporter was sent to around uh, Belfast City Centre to ask people what they thought of streaking. <laughs> so you were in a Catholic family, in a Catholic school, but in a majority Protestant mm-hmm. area. What messages do you think you were taking in as a kid about what it was to be a Catholic? I think I, think I knew that we were wrong somehow. I think that this is maybe a thing that um, a lot of people who live in societies, divided societies, um, realise... I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a lack of awareness sometimes in things that are said. So I, I, I definitely remember just knowing that we were a bit wrong. There were things such as on, you know, BBC or UTV for the uh, television channels, the Irish language was never used. Gaelic games such as hurling and Gaelic football were never, the results were never covered. And um, these were things that people like my family who very quietly identified as Irish were interested in, but they were completely absent. And it it, it had a couple of effects. I mean, I suppose at best it probably made us feel invisible, but it also somehow made those interests seem subversive, um, which was sort of strange. I think also that's possibly why the Catholic Church had um, had quite a lot of hold is because the Catholic churches were able to teach Irish, teach Irish, Irish history and um, and allow kids to play Gaelic games. So that's where the that people felt that the traditions and, and the culture were being uh, perpetrated. But obviously then, of course, it turns out that there was a whole other set of problems. Given that all of this uh, violence and, and sense of threat was happening outside the home, Louise, what were things like inside your family home? Was it was it grim? No, it, was, it wasn't really grim. It wasn't grim. It was, I do think I was uh, being reared by nervous wrecks. Um, th- there was a, spe- a period, I-, I think probably in 1971, where a lot of things happened. And uh, the first thing that went wrong was that uh, my grandmother was um, on her way to the bank to make a lodgement. She had the takings from the pub in her handbag under her arm. And um, she had almost reached the bank when a bomb had been, a bomb, it, it turned out, had been planted just inside the window of another premises in the town and it exploded as she was walking past. Her, her injuries were pretty um, extensive. I think um, at first, for the first couple of news flashes that uh, came on TV, they reported her as a, as a fatality. They thought she was dead. Um, so a large piece of glass had cut her jugular vein and um, an off-duty British soldier actually held her neck together to stop her from bleeding to death. There was a large British army barracks on the outskirts of town and this young fella, who obviously had had some first aid training, knew what to do because nobody else would have known what to do. Now, when my grandmother told that story later on, um, I suppose like she was born in 1920. She just, she'd never have known what trauma was or would have, she'd never have known how to deal with it. But when she told that story later on, apparently... Um, when she began to recover in hospital, she had quite a few surgeries. Um, one of the ambulance men came in. He said, what was in your handbag? He said, you, you were actually, we were losing you and we couldn't get the handbag off you. So there was absolutely no way she was parting with the takings, even though she had lost lost consciousness and stuff. Um, but I, I mean, I guess that's kind of like a reflex. There's this very dark kind of Belfast humour that maybe people resort to or to something as well. To turn that into a joke. Yeah. Well, well, there are lots of storytellers in your family. Yeah, I think that... Um, my yeah, my my father's family in particular. He comes from a big family, and um, you know, if you hurt yourself or if you were a bit sad or a bit whingy, nobody wanted to know. So if you wanted any attention at all, the thing to do was to make them laugh or be entertaining. Um, so you probably had to vie for your place a little bit, and it meant that, you know, um, if you were a good mimic or if you could tell a story, that you'd, you'd feel really good about that. They'd always respond very well. So um, yeah, I think there was probably an element of that. My father, um, my father's a brilliant storyteller. We were, the whole big extended family were on holiday in Cork uh, the summer before last. And um, he started to tell a story. It's just this mad story. I don't even know what it was. But I looked around the room and he had probably about 20 of us just wrapped <laughs> for half an hour or so. 
He's great. The pub, as, as you say, your, your granny ran a pub. What did it look like? What was it like to go to visit that pub as a kid? I love going in there as a kid. So um, my father never worked in the pub because he, he was um, working as an accounts clerk and then st- doing exams at night. And um, I think his wages were probably pretty low. So my mother used to work a, a few shifts in the pub. And when my dad, uh, we had one car, so my dad um, used to like pull us in the car and we'd go and pick her up. And my uncles, who were the barmen, would treat us as if we were like any old punter walking in. So you'd go in and somebody would hoist you up onto a bar stool. My uncle would say, what do you have? And I'd always try to order this drink called Baby Sham. I don't know if it was available no, here. What's yeah, Baby so Sham? It's, um, Baby Sham is, um, I think it's Perry, which is, it was a very sweet kind of pear cider. Perry mm. is a pear cider. And it was served in what looked, I guess, it was like a very tacky kind of champagne coupe glass. And it had, um, the uh, logo had uh, an image of a fawn that looked very like Bambi and I'd been to see Bambi and I presumed that this was something that I could have. Nectar of Bambi. Well, exactly. (laughs) So I used to like try and order um, baby sham and they'd all laugh at me because it had loads of booze in it. Um, (laughs) There was no food but there were always sandwiches, there were always egg and onion sandwiches Um, and yeah, I don't know why. It was bad enough that there was this sort of wet egg and onion with salad cream um, but there were always pieces of like slimy tomato in there as well so the bread was always wet and the onion was always oxidised. And what about the decor? What did it look like? So the decor, um, there were, I think the walls were kind of an off-white, but this kind of uneven sort of plaster effect. I guess it was probably trying to look a bit mock Tudor. And um, there was some there was some stained glass in some of the windows. So I can remember the way the light came in and, um, and cast kind of, you know, coloured shapes of light on the tables. But all of that always came through a fog of cigarette smoke. So everything was like glittering in, in cigarette smoke suspended in it. And then um, the, the the furniture, actually, my aunt has a table. I'm still in a go- She has a table from the pub, but I'm still in negotiation with her because I think I should have it. <laughs> uh, she doesn't at all. And she's like, it was my parents. But I, I want it. And um, it's really, really heavy teak, but it seems very low and very small. This is one of the bar tables. And um, the upholstery was this sort of jade green kind of boucle tweed with, with a kind of a blue check in it. Anyway, I, I remember all of that very well. And who drank there, Louise? Was it only other Catholics? No, not at all. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said, that the Catholic middle class is made up of publicans and bookies. So um, most of the pubs in the north of Ireland were owned by Catholics. Um, so that meant that whatever area you were in, um, you, you were probably drinking in a... If you were in a bar, it was probably Catholic-owned. And um, that that wasn't really a problem at all until maybe the 70s when the sectarian killings really, 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 you know, began to take on this awful momentum. And I suppose that people figured out that if they targeted a bar, they could not only put a Catholic family out of business, they could also, you know, get some other casualties. Um, Now, in in fairness, for balance, um, I'd have to say that a lot of Protestant-owned shops in various places were taken out over, you know, very quickly as well. So, you know, this was just this awful tit-for-tat thing. So I guess the, the pub reflected the demographic of the town, which was that there were a few kind of not very high functioning kind of local alcoholics like you always get in a, in a bar, regulars in a bar. Um, there were off-duty British soldiers. There were off-duty policemen. There were, um, I, mean, I guess, kind of local young people as well, you know, who were just coming out for a few pints. So it probably did reflect the, the, the town in general. So was it a place where even in the midst of the, the troubles, there were kind of friendships or a sort of neighbourliness between Catholics and Protestants? It was very polite. That's what I remember is that it was very polite. But I also felt that um, that veneer of politeness was very dependent on certain things. There were kind of rules underlying that. And I felt that the rule for us was that um, we should not overtly, we should, like, we could never say that we identified as Irish. That could never be said. Um, uh, you know, we had, um, my, my father had a couple of a- albums, you know, LPs of um, of Irish ballads, and they were in a drawer. And I was warned never to let my pal from next door know that they were in the house in case that her father would find out and think that we were like mad Republicans or something. So there was all all of this sort of stuff, I just felt that us living in that area was probably quite dependent on us um, keeping a very low profile and keeping our um, our Irishness to ourselves. Um, it was really about kind of blending in. When, when people, you know, didn't observe those rules, that then they start to run into problems. As you, as you say, Louise, pubs became the target of bomb attacks and, and threats of bomb attacks. When, when was a threat first made against your family pub? Um, there were a couple of incidents, uh, incidences. So um, 
my mother was working one night with my grandmother when a, a couple of young fellas came in uh, looking for a particular Catholic young, young guy who drank there saying that they wanted to kill him and they managed to get them out. But they were actually arrested about an hour and a half later and they did have a gun. Whereas my, my granny and my mother hadn't taken it particularly seriously because they just thought they were too, you know, kind of the young fellas. They didn't think that this was like a serious threat. Um, so I think that was the thing that maybe very quickly anyone you know who wanted could probably join some kind of organisation and um, and and get access to guns. It did you know descend into that sort of crazy chaos very quickly. At the same time, most people lived in a very ordinary, normal way. You know, the vast majority of the po of the population never um, joined a paramilitary organisation, never engaged in any sort of armed you know struggle at all. So that was kind of interesting. What happened in, in 1974 at the family pub? Yeah, so um, I think the first thing that happened was that in 1970, it was November 1973, a customer came into the pub and uh, on the way in, a, a, a lot of people who lived where we lived um, were actually trained to look for bombs. Uh, if they had anything to do with security personnel and even some civil servants, they would have had to check under their cars before they went to work because a lot of people did become targets. So... Um, a customer came in and saw that there was a beer keg with some wires sticking out of it in a, in a car that nobody recognised by the door. And the police were called, and I think that was diffused by police or army bomb disposal experts. So it was a beer keg with £150 of explosives in it, in, in the back of a stolen car. So it didn't detonate. Um, but if that hadn't been noted, it would Oh have. yeah, completely. And then six months later, there was another bomb, but this time it did. There was a warning given, so the place was cleared, but it did um, explode. And uh, the pub was, there was a, a lounge upstairs and um, that that had been used a lot. And uh, a lot of the damage was to the side of the pub and, and the lounge upstairs was damaged too. So that was never really used again. So it was opened again quite quickly and functional. But, you know, the downstairs part would have been functional, but the upstairs was never really used again. And I, I think there were conversations in my family. It was like, OK, do we wait for bomb number three and wait to see if somebody gets killed? Or do we get out of here? So, so when when there are the, those warnings, like you'd, you'd get a call saying a bomb's been planted and people clear the area, mm -hmm. like do you then stand around and watch this? Bomb yeah, I think my um, my uncles and my mum was there for one of those, and they just stood in the tunnel and and, and waited. Yeah, the pub is kind of at the end of a slip road. Uh, off the main street and opposite the pub there was this long tunnel that went under a road and if you kept going through the tunnel you'd you'd be standing on the shores of Belfast Lock so you could always smell seaweed and hear the sea and uh, yeah they'd just go and stand in the tunnel and wait. It's, it's sounding as you say because it was just part of everyday life kind of matter of fact but it must have been terrifying for your family. I think that my yeah I think there was probably an abnormally high level of anxiety amongst all of the adults who brought up me and my friends. You know, my friend, um, one of my friends on the street, her father was Catholic, but he was in the police and um, they were probably under, I think they were under terrible strain. Yeah, just lots of people. I, I think that even people going about their daily business, it was just incredibly stressful, you know, to be stopped and searched. And, and you know, Belfast City Centre was completely closed down. It was this big security cordon, so there were no pubs. You know, my parents would have talked very fondly about, you know, their days when they were young people in the 60s and they used to go to dances and, and uh, bands used to come and perform. But that kind of stopped after that. Everything was really closed and people very much retreated into their communities and, and their homes, I think. Do you remember when family members and friends, Catholics, started leaving Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that. So um, up until 1974, I lived within walking distance with all the relatives on my father's side. And then in 1975, when a decision was made to sell the pub and uh, and leave, um, my grandmother left. Um, my aunt who lived with her left the, the town and went and moved into a flat in Belfast. Um, and two of my uncles and their wives and young children left. So they all moved to the south um, where they bought a different pub. Do you remember how you felt when your, your parents told you that, that you were going to join that and move as well and head south? Yeah, I didn't, um, I wasn't thrilled at the idea and I asked my, so we, we limped along until 1979 and um, and then we, we, we moved, uh, you know, it was decided that we'd move to the south and um, I didn't really want to move, I was 12 and I'd done a year in, in, in a secondary school, kind of grammar school in the north and I, I, I would have preferred to have stayed there but I, I begged my parents to put me in a boarding school the um, only child in the history of the world well, who begged to be put in a boarding school. I had OD'd on Enid Blyton books, so I presume 
feast that Mallory I was going to have. Yeah, totally. My, <laughs> lashings of ginger beer and midnight feasts, and you know, that would be eating like tins of pears under the blankets. And um, but my parents said no that if um, if we were leaving, everyone was leaving, so they wouldn't let me go to boarding school. So I had to move too. What did you imagine the South would be like? You're Irish. You're Catholic. There's this this country that's yours, but also not yours. What what did you think life would be like there? Well, that's a good question. So my parents really tried to sell it to us then, uh, sell it to me in particular. I guess my sisters weren't as um, they were a bit more biddable than I was. Um, so they said, you know, this is where we should be. This is a place where we can just be what we are, and it'll be great. You know. And then we got there and I, I was a bit horrified. It took like two and a half years to get a phone. There was one TV channel. Um, you know, we were part of a, a very small minority in, in, a, in a place in the north. But when we came to the south, it seemed like everybody was Catholic. Everybody was very conservative. It was kind of poor. It was kind of backward. I thought it was atrocious. Also, every time I opened my mouth, people would tease the way I spoke, including some of the teachers, some of the nuns. And I find that a little bit hard to take from people who couldn't pronounce their THs. <laughs> you know, somebody saying dis, dot, t's and o's, which was kind of a thing in Kildare then. Um, and then they're teasing my horrible northern vowels. So you weren't being welcomed as like this estranged Catholic no, sister from the north? No, I think people in the south, um, they thought that the north was mad, which it probably was. Most of them didn't really cross the border. They saw, All they saw on television was what other people saw, which was like murder and mayhem and carnage. And I think they probably thought that we were bringing it on ourselves or we were a troubled lot. And, and I think they didn't really want us coming over the border with all of our grievances and our, um, yeah, all our problems. I, they were just like, keep away. So I did, I did get a sense of that. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Louise, what are your memories of mealtimes as a family when you were growing up? What was on the menu at home? Um, so my mother, um, really annoyingly, actually, um, wouldn't serve processed food, so she cooked everything. And Curse up. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> so I used to um, hang around the back door of my friend's uh, kitchen um, while her mother was serving the dinner because I could not believe my eyes. So her mother um, used to put a pan of simmering, of water on simmering and she'd like lower a tin of steak and kidney pie into it and she'd serve that with like, I don't know, reconstituted marrow fat peas and maybe mash, smash or something, you know, that instant mashed potato. Um, I mean, I'd still probably kill somebody for a Dairy Lee triangle. I still like have this irrational love of uh, processed cheese because we were never allowed it. Um, I can remember as well, um, they used to eat, I don't know if you could get them here, they were called Vesta curries. There were these, um, I mean, they kind of came dried and you had to reconstitute them with water. But I can remember the two of us just like, you know, lowering our, ourselves to eye level and, and watching food, watching grow. it inflate. Yeah, <laughs> um, that sort of thing. Um, so my mother had, um, I think it was, it came out in 52 parts. Every week you could buy a Cordon Bleu um, magazine and um, the the pictures were un unreal, um, like really garish, kind of horrible, swirly things. So she used to buy that sometimes. She didn't have the full collection. But what she did have was one cookbook and it was the Hamlin All Colour Cookbook, which was um, written by Mary Berry and someone else. Um, I can't remember who. A couple of other women maybe. And um, I mean... I, I um, can remember looking at this and just being bewildered. So sometimes there would be like a big turkey or something, but it, it would be suspended in aspic, a whole turkey cold, <laughs> suspended in aspic with like segments of tinned mandarin oranges kind of floating over it. This is the 1970s when food just went Oh my haywire. God, that sort of thing. Um, all of the photography was very strange as well because um, everything must have been photographed cold. 
It was just horrendous. <laughs> all of the fruit, all of the meat had fruit with it for some reason, like cherries and everything. It was just insane. Um, so was she serving that up to you and your family on a weeknight? She night? was doing that kind of thing. Like I remember she made moussaka um, once, and um, but she, you couldn't get aubergines in Belfast. So or do you call them eggplant? But she, you yeah. couldn't get those in Belfast. So she she made a fairly decent one with potatoes, very thinly sliced. <laughs> so yeah, we had our moussaka with spuds. And um, I remember um, she, my mother had a sister who lived in London, and my mother used to get her to bring green peppers in her hand luggage because we couldn't get anything like that. So she was a proper foodie. She mom. was pretty good. And I think, um, what was the other thing? So my uh, also my um, my dad's mother every Sunday used, or every Saturday used to make a big tray of ribs and rice and it was with this kind of soy and honey glaze which is kind of mad at the time to think of. Like the, in the rest of her cooking she certainly wasn't adventurous but it was because my dad's sister had married um, a Chinese student who she met at Queen's University and he had taught her how to make it and yeah, that kind of thing. You moved to London uh, after school yourself. How did that change the way you ate or thought about food? It made a big difference. Um, you know, my mum was an adventurous cook, but you just couldn't really get a lot of stuff where we lived. And um, I found myself in London in the late 80s, and it was the first time I'd ever seen hummus or falafel. I mean, there was a place called Dino's, I think, on Charing Cross Road that I used to go to on a Saturday and, um, you know, wander around the bookshops and then, and then uh, go in there and eat food that I the likes of which I'd never seen in my life. And then even, you know, in the corner shops they sold things like okra, which I'd never seen before. I didn't even like it, but it was very exciting to see it. Um I turned out I didn't like it. Um, what were you doing for work then? Oh well I had intended to be a social worker. I did a social science degree, but I it wasn't really for me. I, I um I did a few placements and so on and um I used to get very upset in meetings, you know, if if there were kind of clients there who were distressed or whatever, and uh, and I'd cry. Can you imagine? So uh, I was absolutely no use to anybody. Um, so I didn't want to do that. Um, I realised it wasn't for me. And um, I guess as a stopgap, I got a job as a temp in a merchant bank in the city of London. What did that entail? Uh, that entailed about 11 and a half months of putting microfiche in alphabetical order. Oh, Louise. Yes. Um, I think it was kind of a form of penance or something. I don't know what I thought <laughs> I was doing to myself. But I, I can remember one day looking and thinking, is anybody even actually going to look at these? Um, and it, it occurred to me that I could start to put them all in the wrong order. And then I thought, imagine being really rubbish at a rubbish job, like the shame of that. <laughs> so I just went back to being really diligent. But I think by the end of that, I probably had lost my mind a bit. And um, and I just wanted to go home. So what did you do when you went back home? Well, I went home and I borrowed money. Uh, it was quite a lot of money, actually. But I borrowed, it took me about five years to pay it off. I borrowed money and I did um, a Cordon Bleu cookery course. So all those magazines your mum your mum. Yeah, I think it kind of did, yeah. And I didn't want to. I'd already done a few years in college and I didn't want to go to catering college for years and um, I just wanted to learn how to cook like really well and really quickly. How steep was that learning curve that of that kind of cooking? Ah, it was amazing. Um, so uh, it was very, it was quite traditional as well. So um, if we um, were making meringue, we were given a copper bowl and a balloon whisk and we had to do it by hand. Um, if we were making, you know, we had to make pastry and things by hand Um and we had, you know, in each of our little workstations, we would have had a, you know, a slab of um, of marble for for pastry making and that sort of thing. It was all very, um, very nice. And, um, you know, we were learning the kind of proper method for everything. Um, there were also kind of funny days too um, when uh, we were told we were going to be cooking game and we presumed that we we're going to come in and um, and find some like nice like kind of dressed little bird there. But instead, there were like feathers everywhere. They were like pheasants. And most of the class took them about two hours before they even touched it. But actually, maybe something happens when you actually get through like a horror like that. Um, we all uh, prepped our pheasants and then ate them when they were cooked. Did you have any complete disasters? Oh, this is a very bad one. Okay, so I used to cook in a place where we fed um, a man who was at one point um, Taoiseach of Ireland, the Prime Minister. Okay, I'm not going to name names. And they were having a party in the house and his wife ordered a very large pavlova. Um, and I used to make lemon curd and put that on it and then some cream and berries and stuff. And I'm not brilliant with meringues. I don't know what it is. I'm just not great with them. Um, but I had made this and it looked stunning. Stunning. So um, the meringue was like really white and it, you could see that um, it was still a little soft inside and everything and it was supporting the filling really well. So they sent the driver, uh, the driver to pick it up and as we were putting it into the back of the car, a tiny little piece broke off and a couple of little pieces broke off and automatically he put one in his mouth and I put one in my mouth and we looked at each other and 
spat basically. So instead of putting sugar, uh, icing sugar in it, I had put bicarbonate of soda. Oh, I cannot even tell you what it tasted like. God, it was on just the idea because God knows who they were entertaining in the house. Uh, the idea of these people, I mean, they could have been diplomats or anything, like literally peeling over, frothing at the mouth from this. That Belfast it looked so beautiful, though. It was terrible. So what did you do? Did you have time to make another? I, I made. I ended up making a meringue roulade really quickly, not with bicarbonate of soda. Yeah, unbelievable. That was my worst ever, but I got away with it. So when, once you finished that the the cordon bleu course, where did you where did you cook? What kind of places? Um, so I worked in a little bistro in Malahide for a while in the it's a t- small town where kind of where my parents left where you know where they moved to originally in Kildare and um, they live in this wee sort of seaside town in, in North County Dublin and um, I worked there for a couple of years. I went to County Clare near the cliffs of Moher for a couple of years. I then um, went to Beirut in Lebanon for about two and a half years. What was that like? It was really amazing at the time. Um, So this was like, I think I went there in 96, uh, 97, 96. And um, the Civil War had ended about three and a half years beforehand. And a lot of Lebanese people who'd who'd left during those years had come back and they'd been all over the world and they had lots of great ideas about businesses. So there were always like kind of new bars and restaurants opening and um, just a great kind of energy about the place. It was still probably pretty anarchic in in, in ways, but... um, yeah, really beautiful and really fun and very positive. Did you always dream of opening your own place as a chef? Yeah, I think that chefs sort of do that. You know, you you think that, um, you know, if you're working for someone else, there are always these kind of constraints on you. Um, even if you're a head chef and you're given a lot of leeway, it's, you know, you never have control over the decor and stuff. You know, you, you, you kind of want to have control over everything. So, yeah, it probably was kind of a dream to, to open a restaurant. And what was the vision that, that you and, and by this stage your husband had together about the kind of place you wanted to? Well, get? I wanted it to be all kind of cosy and um, I guess French style, but using, you know, really good local ingredients and maybe sometimes a little bit of Middle Eastern food would creep into that. And my parents um, had had, um, had a house in uh, Catalonia for a while in, in northern Spain. So um, I was kind of interested in that food too. I'd learned a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, I just envisioned that it was going to be full of these, like, cool people who'd want to drink, like, the kind of wines that I liked and um, eat the kind of food that I liked. It just sounds, I have to say, I want to go. It sounds Yeah, wonderful. you see, it does sound yeah, good, doesn't it? Totally yeah. yeah. And it's, it was in Sligo. What, it was, in, in with, the town, yeah. And, and what sort of place is Sligo? What's the seasonal produce in, in Sligo? It's great for, there's great fish. What I think what there is really is there's unbelievable lamb because it rains a lot. Um, the lamb and beef would be incredible. Um, uh, so it's incredibly green and, um, yeah, the, the livestock is just kind of wandering over hills, um, you know, eating sort of grass and herbs and everything. So that's all gorgeous. Great cheese and dairy produce. Um, you know, really good fish as well. So, yeah, that was the kind of stuff that so was available. the northwest coast of yeah. Ireland. So weather must get pretty wild. What's your favourite season? Um, I like the autumn, I think. I think that's my favourite. Um, and I have a daughter who really likes the winter. Um, sometimes the summers can be a wee bit wet and not warm wet now. They'd be cold, cool enough and wet Um so yeah, I think I, I like the autumn best. I like those kind of colours, and I love the, I love the change in um, in the evening. You know, um, on a kind of damp night where you you know if you're outside and you can get a whiff of turf smoke in the air from somebody's house or whatever. I really like that. So you had this. What sounds to me a great vision of serving beautiful food, local produce, nice wine. What was it like in reality? Well, in reality, we opened um, probably late October two thousand and seven. And the first weekend that we were open, um, the take was good enough. Um, and myself and Stephen, my husband, said, you know, this is just the start. If um, if it continues to build, this this is probably really going to work. And we were all very happy. And it went on like that. But And we probably had a you know decent enough Christmas. Then you're expecting that it's going to be a little bit quiet in, in sort of January, February, because, you know, it's winter where we are and people aren't going out and they've maxed out their credit cards and toys and whatever they've done. And, um, and then... I guess probably a year later, we were looking at each other going, what? Like, where are they? Where have they all gone? Um, so the, the Irish economy, like, I suppose the, there was a global recession then, kind of, to the stars, maybe it started around 08. 
But in Ireland, it was kind of fairly painful. Like it went on until by maybe it was 2011, the Irish government had to guarantee um, some of the banks and um, the Irish people really had to um, had to make a lot of um, sacrifices and pay a lot of extra tax and stuff to um, to, to bail out the banks. There's still resentment about that. Um, you know, at that stage, the EU had sent in what they call the Troika to look at every aspect of kind of Ireland's, you know, official life to try and make reforms because it clearly hadn't been run properly. Um, and Irish people on a personal level had really over borrowed. So the people I, weren't going out to restaurants. Yeah, so if you don't have money the first, you know, there are things that are that you can cut back on. You don't have to go on holiday. You don't have to you don't have to go to a restaurant. So it did get really very quiet. How stressful um, was that as the business owner? I, I, yeah, I mean I don't know. I mean, there's maybe something about how I cope with stress, which is not very well. So um, I probably went for several years not really sleeping very well. I used to, um, I, I ended up, you know, on. I had a history of depressions. I probably ended up on antidepressants and stuff like that. And um, I used to leave my kids to school and, um, and then, you know, intend to do lots of things. We just like flop onto the bed and watch daytime television. Um, there was a, a particular programme um, that was called uh, Air Hunters, which is on BBC. And it was like the saddest thing you've ever seen in your life. What's it, in, what, what, what was it? it um, so it was where um, these uh, documentary makers followed um, a, a firm of of people who specialise in, um, in trying to locate the recipients of wills. Oh, the way. Yeah. So I used to like watch that and weep and then I'd get up and go to work. Oh, man. I know. Talk about self-indulgence. <laughs> it must have been a, a stress in your relationship too when you're running a business with your husband. Oh, yeah. It's it was not terrible. Well. Oh, I'd say. And you had kids just to keep yeah, it Yeah, we had two exciting. kids. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just, um, I mean, I think, you know, when you're actually doing it, you kind of know it's a bit awful, but um, but you have to get up and go through every day. But um, yeah, I think in retrospect, it was pretty atrocious. Did you start to hate cooking? I think that something happened maybe um, the last year that we had the, the restaurant, I think I probably did my best cooking that year, but it had become really very quiet and it was maybe like a kind of breakup of a relationship, really slow, agonising breakup or something. It was hell, um, a very slow, painful kind of uh, an ending. You're still making your best effort. I was but trying really hard and I think there was maybe something where I thought, I knew it was failing and I thought, okay, I don't want the last thing they remember is that they came in here and had a terrible meal. Um, and I really felt that a lot of it, you know, depended on, you know, my cooking or something. Um, so, yeah, I think that maybe did kind of change my um, relationship with, with cooking a bit. In 2014, the year that the business finally went under, you were invited by a friend to attend a writing workshop. What, yeah. What made you tag along? Um, so it was January, early January 2014 and um, my friend was a visual artist and she had young kids and she used to work sometimes with quite big canvases and things and I think she was maybe finding it difficult to do that, in, you know, in, in her circumstances and was maybe hoping that, you know, maybe the writing group would be another form of expression or something for her and um, uh, so she was asked to go along and she said, why don't you come? And I said, no. And a few times that day, she sent me texts or she phoned me and she'd say, oh, come on, come on, come on. So then she turned up at the house and said, get into the car. So I thought, all right. So I grabbed a notebook and went with her. And um, it was pretty awful, actually. Um, there were about eight or nine of us in the room and uh, a facilitator. Um, and he he went around the table and said, asked everyone to, to say why they were there and what they expected to get from it. And people were saying things like, oh, I have, um, you know, I have a chapbook of poems in a drawer and I just want to, like, you know, like edit it a bit and, and maybe expand on it and somebody else would say they had a half written memoir and somebody else had, had a short story published and then it came to me and I said oh, I'm here because like Neve made me come <laughs> oh god it was so embarrassing it was so embarrassing they, they all looked at me with a mixture of kind of pity and I don't know what horror um and at the, by the end of that meeting, it was decided that we would take it in turns, that someone would su submit a short story every week and a kind of rosary was drawn up and it looked like I had five weeks to write a story. And it did occur to me to never go back, but I must have been curious because I think that I probably started trying to write the story as soon as I got into the house that night. And um, I don't know what happened to me, but um, as soon as I started, I just figured that I didn't really want to be doing anything else at all. Why? Um... There's maybe, I think now there's maybe something about language um, that uh, because I ha had felt um, that I needed to ditch my northern way of speaking in school. So outwardly, I sound like, you know, I sound like a southerner, um, 
But in my head, I think I still really express myself like a, a northerner. And I think that maybe when I wrote that that voice was coming out and I just felt more like myself or something. You went on to publish a collection of short stories and then last year your debut novel, Trespassers, came out. Did you always plan on writing about the Troubles? I guess if you're speaking in your Northern Irish accent yeah. in your head, was that a time and a place that it felt inevitable you'd return to? Um, I think it was maybe about the circumstances when I, you know, that I was in when I started to write the novel. So um, I... In March 2019, I got a diagnosis for um, melanoma and I had some surgery and I knew that I was going to have like two or three months off work. So I did about three days in an armchair on really strong painkillers, watching episodes of Call My Agent back to back on Netflix. It wasn't a bad way to spend a couple of days. But also I thought you have to get real. So um, I switched to Panadol, came off the strong painkillers and um, kind of rigged myself up a sling because I had had a wound under my arm and one of my shoulder blades and... um, I had started to try and write a novel, started a novel um, the previous, a few months earlier, but really all I'd done was to make a couple of Spotify playlists of music from the 70s and and I'd spent many many hilarious happy hours um, watching YouTube videos about Belfast in the 70s. Hilarious stuff. Uh, but it wasn't enough. I mean, that wasn't right enough. So, so just so that I'm clear, you got a cancer diagnosis yeah. and treatment. And yeah. it was that that pushed you into actually starting the book? I think so. So I think that, um, you know, I had a few, a couple of notes and I had these playlists and I thought, OK, first of all, I needed to get out of that chair and stop watching TV. Um, and I thought, OK, if I, I'm going to try and write a thousand words a day and see what happens. Um, and just try to write a novel. And part of it was maybe to take my mind off my predicament and, and, and also to avoid thinking about whether I might be dying or not. But also maybe it was because I knew that time might be an issue. Before that, I'd been wandering around going, you know, kind of writing a novel, but I wasn't really doing any work. Um, and I, I think I maybe realised that um, I couldn't presume that I'd have, you know, maybe I couldn't presume I had five years or ten years to do it. So it, it just seemed a bit urgent. There was also a bit of freedom in it because at that time I didn't have a publisher. Uh, so I, nobody ever had to see it. So I was able, I just thought I, I'm going to just write it for myself. I didn't, I didn't really consider anything else. Great freedom in that, I think. Was there a bit of a break in your own mind too that you could escape what was going on around you? Absolutely. This yeah. other world. Um, you, you know, within maybe a week or two, um, whenever I had to leave um, my, my laptop and go into the other room, I felt that I'd like abandoned my friends or something. It, it did start to feel pretty real, you know. Was it emotional for you, though, Louise, going back in your mind and your heart to this time in your life? Uh, it was. Some of it was. I mean, so, so I laughed a lot sometimes. I think, you know, I had some fun writing some of the characters. You know, um, Kushla's mother, Gina, who has a drink problem. Um, almost every word that comes out of her mouth, I could imagine coming out of my grandmother's mouth. So I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but the other parts of it were probably painful uh, uh, and a bit sad. I found it difficult to... Um, Davy probably broke my heart, uh, most of all. He's the little boy who Kushla becomes very close to one of her pupils. Um, there was a child who, um, you know, my family knew very well, who lived with us for a while and then he was gone and um, he was a much, much younger child. Um, but I probably tapped into a lot of that feeling or something when I was writing um, Davy. So that was probably painful. Was there a point, Louise, where you realised you were referring to yourself as a writer rather than a chef? Um, I, I don't really... I still... Like people would say, oh, there's my friend, she's a writer or something and I just want to die. I find it mortifying. So I still feel kind of like a chef with notions. Um, I don't... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I find it kind of mad. You know, I um, I didn't. I live in a small town in the, in the northwest, and um, I I was attending Queen's University part time for several years, where I did an MA in creative writing and then a PhD. So people in Belfast, my friends there, I I'm among people who write, and um, um, and that's fine. But nobody really where where I live knew that I was writing, and I think my neighbour um a couple of years ago, maybe about two and a half years ago, um. Um, was kind of looking over the fence and saying, your face is in the... It was like, my big face is in the Sunday Times um, because um, because of, like, the short story collection. But she didn't really know that I'd been writing. Like, people didn't really know that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I may be more comfortable with kind of... I, I, I would tend to say that I'm trying to write or I'm writing rather than saying I am a writer. And how's your health going these days? Um, it's, it's pretty good. Um, so my melanoma... I think it probably hadn't really gone away. It seemed like it, you know, they'd got it all, but they hadn't. And um, in September, 
September, October 2021, it was clear that it had come back and I had kind of stage four. So uh, they, after a bit of him and hand, um, they put me on immunotherapy drugs and they are unbelievable. So after eight months, I'm completely tumour free. Fantastic. So I'm still in treatment. So once a month, I drive all the way down to Galway and back and um, they put a big bag of very expensive drugs into my chest and send me on my very merry way. And I'll be in treatment until November, December. Um, so I don't know, maybe, I don't know if the drugs will stop working at some point or what will happen, but they seem to be very happy with the results now. That's great yeah. news. What tattoo did your dad get? Your uh, accountant dad, nearly 80, oh, my poor in response accountant to all this. Dad. So, um, yeah, I'm not the only uh, person in my family who's had cancer. So in the last seven years, my mother, both my sisters and myself have had cancer, all different types of cancer. And um, my sister suggested to my father that he um, get a tattoo in age of the Irish Cancer Society. And part of the reason for that is that um, it was probably to wind up my mum who hates tattoos. <laughs> And, um, and also my dad is an accountant, so he's not really kind of tattooed sort of a chap and he's nearly 80. Um, so he did it and uh, and raised, um, I think it was like nearly €10,000 for the Irish Cancer Society. Lots of people were very excited about it. And how does it look? Um, no, it's it's kind of small and fairly discreet, but to, to annoy my mother, he's threatening to get a sleeve done. He's going, oh, I really like this now. So it's a little small kind of a loop, a ribbon kind of loop thing, um, which is a symbol of the, of the Irish Cancer Society. <laughs> When you um, go back to Belfast, to back to Northern Ireland now, what, what's it like? How's the atmosphere changed since you were a kid? I think it's changed a lot since I was a child. Um, in some ways, it's it's hard for me to recognise it because I think that physically it's changed a lot. Um, so, you know, some buildings were damaged and, 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 and uh, not not salvageable. Um, another, there's a huge road called the West Link that kind of cuts right across the city. So um, a lot of places that I think I remember are just absolutely not there now. And they also cut like way more through than they needed to. So there's like this kind of big empty strip the whole way across. Um I, I find it very strange to be able to walk around freely around Belfast city centre. I think that's really weird. I still find it a little strange, even when I'm on my way to Belfast, um, to cross the border and there are no queues and no security. Uh, I think that something maybe impressed me when I was in Queens, where I a lot of my fellow students are quite a bit younger than me, and they're very political, but not in the way that people would have been political in in the times that we lived in. So they're concerned about the things that young people are everywhere concerned about. So women's reproductive rights, because, um, it, you know, there are some quite conservative elements there um, who, who, who really were fighting that. They're concerned about, you know, the status of refugees when they come. Um, they're concerned about the health service falling apart, climate change. So so all of that I'm, I'm, I'm finding like really refreshing. But yet there's still a political vacuum. You know, there's, there isn't a functioning executive at the moment. And, and the place really has suffered a lot from Tory government after Tory government running the health service into the ground. So, you know, there's, there are all of those things. Is and the uncertainty around Brexit is not helpful. Is the family pub still there? No, it's not there. Um, so I went looking for the pub and, um, and what I found was that um, the, uh, the pub had been demolished and um, in its place was the makings of a bonfire for the 12th of July. One of the kind of big uh, celebration days for um, for loyalists, Protestant loyalists, um, um, celebrating a victory over the Catholic uh, King James at the Battle of the Boyne. Um, so, yeah, there tend to be kind of bonfires and uh, a lot of jubilation on the 12th of July. So I sent my father a picture and, said, and he said, they got it in the end, they got us in the end. That's another chance to bring in your black Irish humour then, uh, I exactly. guess, when you see that. <laughs> <laughs> Louise, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, it's been really wonderful. Uh, not at all. Thank you. you so, so much for having me, Sarah. It was lovely. Louise Kennedy was my guest today and Louise's excellent debut novel is called Trespasses. She's also published a collection of short stories called The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. And I spoke with Louise in Adelaide, where she was a guest of Adelaide Writers Week. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.